Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. All right. Welcome to another word in your ear. And we're joined by wearing a splendid pair of headphones that look as if the last saw service on a BOAC pilot going across the Atlantic. (laughs) (laughs) Which wouldn't be surprising at all. Tony Fletcher. Hello, Tony. Great to see you. Thank you for that great introduction. I'm I'm quite proud of them. They're quite new, actually. Thank, oh, you, for really? com- thank you for the compliment. My last well, pair lasted a- about 15 years. Well, headphones have sort of they they've they've made a virtue of being small, and then they've made a virtue of being big again, haven't they? You know, they kind of they're a fashion item nowadays as much as anything else. Anyway, I'm not criticised at all. <laughs> Tony, lovely Where to are see you, Tony? You're somewhere Where are is it you? near Woodstock. We talked to you before, and I think it's near Woodstock. It's East Coast. Yeah, somewhere. it is. It is absolutely. I'm in Kingston, New York, original state capital of New York. The British burned it down during the revolution. Yeah. Um, though some of the stone buildings survived. So there is a bit of a of a British look to it. It's the gateway to the Catskills, only about 15 minutes from the famous village of Woodstock, if not the actual festival of Woodstock. And yeah. uh, just about 100 miles north of New York City. Okay. Out of there, you've managed to produce a very, a very English product. I think very English, <laughs> none more English, <laughs> none more English. Uh, when I received it, I thought, "Well, this is like the Beano Christmas Annual." This <laughs> is—is that what you? That was what you were seeking, wasn't it? That was 100% what I was seeking. I kept saying to the publishers, what I really want to do with this is have it feel like one of those Christmas annuals, and Beano is perfect, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I mean, if that's genuinely what you got from it, that's it. I can I, I can move <laughs> on to the next project. Everything's been, <laughs> everything's been achieved. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not glossy. Well, it's got a glossy cover, but, you know, inside it's kind of, it's matte, isn't it? Really, and it's got the well, it's got the feeling of the original fanzine, isn't it? I mean, you presumably sought to get the same kind of paper, did you? I I, I got to give credit to the publishers on on that because I actually wasn't entirely sure what paper we were going to use. The one the one thing I'll say about it that was kind of hilarious is, um, you know, on PDF 
it looked like so shiny and crystal clear. And of course, as anybody uses a right. PDF knows, you can blow them up and blow them up and blow them up. <laughs> and they they still look perfect. And when I got the book, I was like, yeah, good old fanzine days. Got to get the glasses out. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. It's so funny. Uh, the first thing that struck me was that in those days, fanzines always had a lot of underprinting, didn't they? Yeah. So you'd have yeah. you'd have the text, and underneath you'd have the picture of Paul McCartney, which always made it incredibly difficult to read. Very we nostalgic. Infamous. We were well, infamous. Well, no, 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 no. we'll, we'll come. To, we'll come to that. We're better for the virtue, for the benefit of anybody who can't see this. So just explain what this is. We're talking about this is the best of jamming. Uh, selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up 1977 to 86, put together by Tony Fletcher, forward by Billy Bragg. Uh, but Tony, this was very much your baby, and you've been on the past in, in our podcast talking about this, haven't you? You started this when you were at school, didn't you? I did start it at school at the age of 13 in South London, which I really put down to more the fact that it was just uh, it was the autumn of 1977. So I put it down more to the fact that things were happening rather than just that I started something at that such a young age. Um, but it did grow. And I, you know, after a year of doing it at school, I decided that I actually quite like doing this school fancy and I wanted to grow it. I had no no particular plan or idea. I guess I probably had a little bit of ambition and and, you know. Where, uh, wherefore, but uh, it lasted a decade. It grew into a national magazine, like like so many bands that we all talk about, record labels. You know, it, it ends up commerce gets in the way of the creativity, and and after a decade, it kind of you know I knocked it on the head. It collapsed. Whatever you want to say about it, but all these years down the line, I'm so thrilled to put a book together because oh, it's well, a we'll, journey. Yeah, we'll get to all that. Well, I tell you, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't help feeling very envious. I thought. I wish I had a book like this of every magazine I've ever been involved with, you know, because I have kind of bound volumes and so forth of certain things. But, you know, but this is just a wonderful kind of quick tour. Well, it is quite detailed, really. But, you know, it's, as you say, 10 years summarized in there. And I'm sure for many people who've lost their original copies or they've, they've surrendered to mildew or whatever. Yeah. This is a brilliant way to replace them, isn't it? It's an extraordinary it, thing. But take us back to, to, to when you launched it, because, yeah, you were 13, and in the intro, it's fantastic. You talk about being already being backstage at Thin Lizzy concerts at the Hammersmith Odeon, so you were kind of really involved from a very early age. What were you re- Were you reading the music press and fanzines at the time? And, right. And, and was this a reaction against them or what? No, not at all. It wasn't a reaction against, um, particularly against the music papers, because the inspiration was actually a center page spread in sounds written by John Savage, of all people, about fanzines. And we don't always associate John Savage with that kind of punk, so much of that. But I mean, he, you know, he wrote this thing about fanzines. There were three or four of us in my class at school. I remember it. Um, you do remember that piece? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Well, well, I, I actually still have it. Funny enough, I found it when I was preparing this book and we use it as an underlay um, early on in the book. There were three or four of us at school that were really, really, really into music, uh, more so than others. And actually, um, the friend that I asked to start the fanzine with me, who I'm still really close friends with, he said no for reasons he can't quite compute all these years down the line. And he suggested I ask the other kid who was a hard rock fan whose dad was very high up in the main sort of security company at the time. And actually it was 
the friend who said no, who went backstage at the Thin Lizzy show, I didn't get to see Thin Lizzy, but it did mean that there were there were a few of us that were really music mad. And this other kid, Lawrence Weaver, had access to, I guess, through his dad to get into concerts. Oh, wrongly, yes. Mm. And and um, but my friend John Matthews, and I'll give him a credit because he's the one who wrote that piece in the front of the magazine about being backstage with Thin Lizzy. Um, you know, I'll give him credit because he's maintained incredibly eclectic music taste, but he, we laugh about it. I asked him after reading this copy of Sounds during the math lesson, hey, John, you want to start a fa- one of these fanzines with me? He went, nah, not really. You should ask Lawrence. And so I did. And so we ended up for the first few issues with a, a so-called fanzine that was sort of partly about the jam and partly about Rush. Yeah, it, is, uh, it, says, it says on the cover, it says the story of Led Zeppelin or something. Yeah, you know, no, it's yeah, yeah. And there's a little, there's a little uh, gossip and news thing called Spills, 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 which is partly about Nazareth and ELO and partly about the Pistols and the Stranglers. So you were, you were kind of looking for your identity at that stage, weren't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we all want to kind of be able to re- rewrite our past as being, you know, we were all perfectly formed by some epiphany. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did have an epiphany, epiphany in 1977, but it kind of took a while. And um, yeah. and I, you know, I'm quite quite glad about that because all these years down the line, I recognise that some of the music I liked, sort of pre and the round punk, was great, and and some of it was prog rubbish, and uh, and and I'm at least glad that I was exposed to a lot of that before really kind of coming down into that post punk new wave world that I was very uh, fortunate to be so in the midst of. Yeah. So the, what was the idea of the book? I mean, you're not you're not re- reproducing all of it, are you? But no, not it's, at all. Uh, right. Okay. So, what how, what was your kind of selection criteria as to what what got included, what didn't? Well, the the criteria, the process, if I can use that word, was incredibly hard. And you've both edited magazines, and I started off with this wish list that took me kind of weeks to put together. Sent it to the editor, and they said something like, "Well, that's four hundred and fifty pages, and we you right. know, we price out for two hundred and twenty-four, so <laughs> cut fifty percent." kind of started from there and worked our way down the line the editor was very helpful about saying let's let's try and get you know a sports article in there and a political and an artist and i thought that was really important because um yeah i've I've made sure in this book that we've got features about aswad about the rise of the british mc about run dmc some african music because it would be too easy to just fill this with the bands that people associate. Oh, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's an anti-fox hunting piece. And there's yeah. A, there's a profile yeah, re- of George Best. Fantastic. Yeah, I really wanted to get those pieces in. But there was a process. And then what we ended up deciding to do was we would reprint certain stories full, more or less full size. And so that hopefully people can read them, um, despite the original layout. And then we would reprint additional pages more for the visual impact right. so so there's a lot of stuff i don't actually expect people to be able to read it's it's really about the visual impact of those particular pieces and then so much fun reaching out to former contributors people i hadn't been in touch with since you know the end of the magazine and tracking some people down and getting some contributions from them all over again and the whole thing just felt like being immersed back in the process of editing the magazine because, you know, we were late to the printers and there was too much copy and I was correcting the same people's copy I used to correct 35 years ago. <laughs> so did you, you enjoyed it, did you? I mean, because do you miss editing something? Because Mark and I talk about this all the time because, we, you know, you probably get stopped by old jamming readers say, oh, why do you start it all over again just for me kind of thing? 
And I always think, no, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do any of this again. I've only got three o'clock in the morning years of my life doing print, banging out captions. I, you, you probably I, feel differently. No, I honestly don't miss the monthly deadlines. You probably, I think you were involved in magazines that were maybe more frequent than that. I, I don't miss that at all. There were too many all-nighters, but all of us, in this very medium we're in here are doing podcasts and yeah. you know editing a podcast is almost like a modern way of doing that so i do yeah. still pull the occasional later night than i would like to trimming down a podcast doing this book was enormous fun i did push it a little close to the print deadline i did laugh about the fact that uh, i was you know still dealing with contributors who would go sort of missing for a few days while this I was is it. to get their approval. Yes. This um, is what they do. This is what they do. It doesn't matter how professional or how amateur they are, they they just disappear. Yeah. They're, but they're but that, all of all of that said, it was it was lovely, and especially to reconnect with people and and more than anything, to learn from a number of people who wrote for the magazine, probably for very little pay. Uh, how how fondly they felt yeah. towards it. I that yeah. really was was was. I hadn't actually anticipated it being on that level. I thought this was a little more self serving. Sort of, I wanted to do well, this. Well, presumably, also they would love having this book, wouldn't they? You know, if you've yeah. written for Jammin and your yeah. piece is in there, you put it on your, you know, show your children or whatever. This is what I did in the war or something. Yes, you know, yes. to, to be able to show them in print is is. It's a kind of key thing. I must there's admit, a bit where, uh, there's uh, also where, the bits. I love the, the bits you've added from the notebooks. Uh, can I refer you to page 109? You uh, I, can. I, I, <laughs> Go reminds, on. reminds me of one of the buses from Brixton down to Stratton. <laughs> yeah. okay. You've got a page called From the Notebooks where somehow you've, you've, you've reproduced the finance uh, Oh, report. that's brilliant. With the 11,000. <laughs> I, I made a note of that too. <laughs> It's fantastic because the print bill is uh, 1100 quid, I think. Yeah, and you also keep wow. a record of every single – the number of copies that go to each shop. Absolutely. And wonderful. then the number of copies go to each individual. So you've got kind of, you know, Kate from, um, you know, Kate from, from Norwich has got 50 copies to sell. That's uh, right. It's brilliant. So when it's eleven hundred pounds, did you ever make? Did you ever make any money out of it? I mean, I'm assuming it must have made a profit at some stage. Yeah, well, looking at it around that period, I'm trying to see the account got settled with better badges. So better yeah, badges, of course. Better better badges. Badges. Distributed yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were the printers, Jolly, and actually, I saw yeah. Jolly just a few weeks ago. He lives in New York, and um, I went up and uh, hand delivered uh, Jolly his copy because he was. So what, what are you saying? Better badges printed it. Yeah, Better Badges printed from issue seven to twelve, and um, I I always give credit to Jolly. I think it was largely circumstantial, but fate, you know, kind of intervened. And I'm not sure if Jamming would have had a future after issue six because anybody who's done a fanzine will tell you the printing is yeah. yeah it just was destroying me trying to find a good printer, and I'd had been through two printers in two issues and I was enormously struggling and I went up to see Jolly to hassle him for a for an advert so that yeah. I could help meet a printing bill and he told me I'm just getting hold of a printer to print more badges and I've got this camera that I'm going to do my own work and do you want to be a guinea pig and you can do it for cost and, and of course he he was putting a lot of business printers way as well wasn't he with his badges was he so yeah he yeah, he was, and he was doing a lot of badges himself, and he wanted to expand. And yeah. so it was. It, he printed jamming at cost, and 
after that, I sent other fanzines his way where right. he could charge them, you know, a markup. And um, so there was this period where people talked about a quote, better badges fanzine. There was a certain look uh, that right. became a little generic, but, but the period that jamming really built and was a fanzine uh, through and through, but it built from sort of almost black and white to a sort of gatefold A3 magazine. Those half dozen issues were all done at better badges. Right. And now just one further thing on your accounts. I was yeah. delighted you, you got owed to mum yep. 350 pounds <laughs> paid back. Yes. I know. That, 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 so you did your mum advance you 350 quid. Well, I better look at this, did she? That sounds that sounds very generous. Um, <laughs> where, where is that? I'm assuming it's in right the, there, but page in the middle of pa- page 109. Yeah, yeah. And on oh, the yeah, page- owed to mum 350. Yeah, god, she was great. She <laughs> used Wasn't to come she? Up- she used to come up to bear the badges and like pick up, you know, a thousand fanzines that I would then staple and collate on my bedroom floor. You know, they, they still have fond memories of her. This sort of, you know, she was a school teacher, so she right. wasn't immune. That's to, a lot of money. Oh, so she knew yeah. how to organize things. Well, I think she also wasn't completely thrown out by being in sort of crazy places like like Rough Trade or Better Badges. But uh, I did have a like a little kind of cottage industry going in the bedroom when I used to have to collate and staple them, you know, because it was cheaper to do it yourself. And I'd get my school friends around. I had a whole production line of how we would do it. And we just put on singles, records and, you know, have fun evenings, kept us off the streets, I guess. So you, so you did it for 10 years and you said you kind of, I don't know, lost interest or whatever, but 10 years in fanzine life is a long time, long time. isn't it? Yeah. You clearly had kind of staying power that lots of other people didn't. And lots of other people must have done three and then thought, oh, yeah, I'll move on to something else. I'll go to college, whatever. You clearly just, you had that, that, right stuff didn't you to do this uh yeah i mean that's for other people to say i guess that um well i'm saying it yeah i did it well you know you and and i i appreciate that i guess i did enjoy it for long enough that i wanted to do it and jamming seemed to sort of fulfill some kind of role in the music world and i guess what you were all looking for because we don't you know we don't all plan these lives um you know, it's not like somebody who really says, I am going to become, you know, a nuclear physicist and or, or even indeed a doctor, which is such an honorable profession and sets off down that path. If you're doing a fanzine and it's building and then more and more contributors want to write to you and more and more bands say, you know, here's a record and it's easier access to the bands that you did want to interview and you're enjoying being in the midst of a scene, then you stick at it. You know, it's a it's an age old thing. Is it fun? Despite the hard work, despite the deadlines, despite the financial crush. And you were asking if it if it made money. I mean, yes, I paid Jolly back through most of that period. But I think once we actually went commercial, it never made money. So I should have kept it at that level. Probably. How easy was it? There's a, there's a fantastic letter from Paul Weller. This is when you were 14 saying, yes, come to Rack Studios where I'm recording. I'd love you to hear the new album. Here's the telephone number. Give me a ring. Um, you know, let's sort out an interview. And you must have been thinking at that point, I can't believe it's as easy as that. That must have been a real surprise. And then the next issue, I think you get uh, Pete Townsend and two issues later, Paul McCartney. I mean, how easy was it setting that up? And was it partly because they didn't want to do the music press? And this was actually a wonderful, safe place where they weren't going to get criticised. 
Yeah, we've been talking about that a little bit with doing the book. And I think the answer is that, uh, yes, they did enjoy doing fanzines. And I think that most uh, people, you know, the Pete Towns, I met Keith Moon right before he died. If you're a little kid and you're getting in touch with these people, I think they have to be have something wrong with them to just like completely ignore you. But that would that would maybe be more in person for somebody like Weller to write back. It was such a surprise. I you know, that summer after doing a school fanzine, which it, it was printed at school, it felt like very much like a school fanzine. I figured, well, I want interviews. So let me write to a bunch of people. And the Weller wrote back within literally within a few days. And I couldn't believe that letter either. Um, it was and, and I also have Fantastic. to say that the general were already my favorite group. This wasn't. I wasn't like casting my net so far that like, oh, I'll settle for the jam. This was my favorite band, despite the fact their second album had kind of tanked. And they were, I probably wrote to Paul just as David Watt's A-Bomb in Wardle Street was charting. But other than that, they had been widely considered by the music press to be completely spent. You know, just another band that had too much too soon. But they were my favorite band. I'd already seen them two or three times at the age of 14. And so to get that letter back completely shocked me. I mean, the number, funny, of course, wasn't his. It was his family number. He was living up in London. But I, I actually kind of guessed as much. And I spoke to his mom. No, it's, and still, I, it's still pretty amazing, a, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I went up. Yeah, yeah, it's number. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So what, tell us about the layout and production of jamming and, and how you went about things. But were you doing it single-handed or was there a designer or anything like that? There are various kind of itinerations, if that's the right word, of jamming. The, a lot of the early issues were done with somebody I was also in a band with, Jeff Carrigan, and he had some a few design skills. He, he did go on to um, uh, London College of Printing, I recall, and he helped out a lot. His dad helped us get the printer for that number five, which is the one with, with the Weller interview we just mentioned. And then um, we did a lot of it in my bedroom. Do you remember, it still exists, I think, Cowgum? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, good grief. I can smell yeah. it now. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe it's good for you. Oh, you say it's certainly not. None I've of that's got some here, is it? It's pretty much that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I also don't believe that Tipex is good for you. And I do know that there are people who would, you know, like make a point of sniffing Tipex. And I no. also I also don't believe that spray paint is good for you. But spray mount. Spray mount. No, actual spray oh, paint. Spray, spray mount's not oh, good okay. for you either. Yeah, but spray need, mount wouldn't be good for you. And, no. and and spray paint isn't. But for a while there, in um, I'm amazed I've got brain cells left. My bedroom was full of <laughs> cowgum, Tipex, and we actually hand sprayed issue five through a stencil um, in my bedroom, going through several cans of spray paint. While hallucinating. <laughs> while hallucinating, yeah. While hallucinating that I was actually doing something of but merit. You see, I remember yeah. these days so well, because they emulate... Yeah, even Smash Hits done for a, a kind of professional publisher in those days, pre-desktop publishing, was done the same way. You know, it was, it was cutouts, it was letter set, letter from, set. The, from the shop down the, the corner. Pictures and so forth. projected and, onto walls. Yeah, you know? and Steve yeah. Bush, the, the art director, used to regularly just get, you'd get down underneath his desk, I remember, with a big yeah. piece of paper, and then you'd hear this, hissing of spray mounts, you know, as he fixed something. And nobody for a second ever said, 
Is this a bit dangerous? Is this, yeah, should we Did be anybody ever? Say and you'd that? walk around all afternoon picking very valuable transparencies off the bottom <laughs> of your shoes. It was a sticky business, wasn't it? It, it, it was. Really, well, it, it was. Really pro- was. It, it was classic cut and paste. It wasn't command C, command V. The, definitely, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like here's a transcript. Oh. I uh, allocated four pages, yes. five pages long. Cut, paste, yes. cut, paste. Um, uh, and I haven't got room for the photograph and the type, so we'll put one on top of the yeah, other. Yeah, of course, obviously. <laughs> yeah. and, and then you send it to the printers and they can't figure out how to halftone it, so they halftone the entire page so you get the page back in grey. Yeah, that's where and it's that's illegible. Where, yeah, and it's illegible. Yeah. That's where Jolly really, really came in, in handy. Um, on the design front, there, it, obviously, as, as we're recounting, the fanzine grew into a magazine. But again, I think that golden period, what I look back on as a kind of golden period, uh, Robin Richards, who passed away, he was a great designer. And he came up with the logo that's on the front of the book, the kind of Roy Lichtenstein style logo. Right. And he helped design... Uh, some front covers that I think really propelled us forward. He was a t-shirt designer by trade. So he brought this very visual t-shirt um, ethic to it. He had no idea how to lay out a magazine either. The printers were were just like, what is this we're working from? Because he was used to silk screening. Well, and listen, they were like, yeah, Steve Bush, who was the art director of Smash Hits, and the absolutely key person in Smash Hits, same background, t-shirts. He used t shirts and back badges, is what his background was. Uh, he'd never designed, he'd a never done a magazine before he joined. I think. And, and the thing I was going to say that actually, a further parallel with Smash Hits talking about the logo is you varied the logo quite a bit, didn't it's, you? It ends up as just J, isn't it? Just the letter J, isn't that right? I think <laughs> that's the point at which you're kind I, I don't, of running out of things. I don't suggest that that was a bad idea. Is that right? hurtful? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't want to intrude to private grief, but we know yeah. what it's like in the world of magazines. We do. Somebody always says, "Oh, do you think it'd be easy if we made a single letter?" Is that what happened? I think it. I think it is. So I feel very strange about the because you can read it when issues. it's racked yeah. on on shelves, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but- I mean, actually, visually. Visually, it works. I guess had it succeeded and carried on at that point, it would have been known as J Magazine, which you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Because also, you've got, you've got the logo. You've got the logo on its side here. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is only what Smash Hits did round about the same time. And, you know, because people were, even Smash Hits, very commercial magazine, we're literally making up the rules, rules as we went along. Nobody would change the logo of anything nowadays. <laughs> we change it routinely. We change it every 18 months or something. Just, yeah, let's change the logo. Do you crazy see we'd do it without it. telling anybody? Madness. <laughs> Never consulted the publisher. I know. So I've got, to, I've got to ask you now. I'm going to, I'm going to flip the script. Were your designers the kind that when we're talking about cut and paste and when I moved along and it was at least we got typesetting back and it was like it's still three lines too long. So your designer would just go fix it and cut off the last three lines. Well, it certainly like, happened at the enemy. I can remember people going along just slipping and they're just putting a full stop in. Cut from the yeah. bottom. Yeah. But, yeah, but in the enemy, fair enough, that came, they came from a newspaper culture yeah. where all the important stuff's in the first few paragraphs. And so it doesn't matter what's down at the bottom. Smash Hits was different. Yeah, it's all in all the corker. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't really do that. So. So yeah, talk talk about this this period where you you had to say, all right, we've we can't go any further with it as a as a fanzine. It's got to be a proper magazine. So we're going to glossier paper and and, and then it's sold in shops rather than record shops. Isn't is that it? is that basically what you were doing? Essentially, that's what happened. It had always got into some. Shops. I mean, certainly it was always in like things like Virgin Mega Stores. And then there were these two issues that the what I call the McCartney issues. I was running a record label at the time with with Paul Weller, and jamming became literally an annual. I mean, we're joking at the start that this looks like an annual. I was so busy with this like I just had no time in my life. So actually, there were these two excellent issues that were probably a little out of date by the time they came out, but they were they were great, both designed to a large degree by Robin Richards. The label um, closed when Paul Weller moved on with the jam, you know, broke up the jam, et cetera. And I was like, well, I'd better get back to that fanzine. But I, I similarly just felt, well, at the same time, given what's happened with the the, the McCartney interviews, etc. Time to really step it up. I went to a distributor called Seymour Press. I had a perfectly good relationship with down in Brixton, and um, and they agreed to take it. And we 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 became a bi-monthly, meaning came out every two months as of September 1983. And then a year later, they pushed me, and I I should have been strong enough to say no. They pushed me and said, you know, bi-monthlies don't work. No, there aren't any. You know, go monthly. Like going yeah. monthly was a because people just forget about you. I get that. You know, they didn't forget about it when I had an annual fanzine because they'd write to me and say, "Hey, I sent you four pounds two years ago oh, well, that's oh, yeah, yeah. for six issues, and you forgot for two years." <laughs> Where's my money? Where's my magazine? <laughs> if they, if it was selling in the shops, did that mean that you were aware of which covers sold, which bands sold? Was that because I mean that. I think all editors are haunted by. I'm haunted by the yeah. disaster of Dido on the cover of Word. You know, can you remember what the big sellers were? Uh, we're yeah, gonna... I, I think I can. I mean, you would imagine it would be, you know, people like Morrissey, which it was, and U2, and I'm looking at them here, Elvis Costello. Yeah. I mean, there was a point that we did a collage at the end of one year, and it didn't seem to affect it too much. Um, mm. I think hopefully you've got people going, you know, is the new jamming in stock? 
and they buy it. When I yeah. when I look, when I look at these covers, I mean, my regret, but I think this comes from being coming out every two months, every month, and not being able to take the risks of a of a weekly. You know, every face on every cover is white, and every face on every cover, with the exception of uh, two people that I can see here, is male. Yeah, um, and those yeah. two people are also not even solo artists. They're yes, the, the cocktail twins, and yeah, and I think it. Talking Heads. I think you know, oh, yes. Weymouth, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a big debate about Talking Heads. You sort of said that you were agonised by the idea of having a, a, an American group on the cover. So was that a big cultural issue? I think I think it was. I think we felt very very British. Which, by the way, I'm not particularly proud of nor necessarily embarrassed by but i think we did we wrote yeah. a lot about the huskadoos about rem we were in there from day one from absolutely yeah. day one i fell in love with rem um i think that we felt like a bit of a risk putting those people on the cover and uh, yeah the cover is really it's such a bind uh, we just did daft covers though. i'm looking we put mike scott on the cover with the water boys and he deserved it and we've got a picture of him hiding his face and it's <laughs> It just looks like a black cover. I mean, you know, if we were trying, if we were trying to like put, you know, marketable front covers, we weren't very good at that. I think the best we ever did was uh, the photographer Russell Young did a great session with Morrissey that's been widely seen in the years since. Yeah. And that cover was probably really successful. But we were just, uh, we were still amateur almost, almost till the very, very end. Almost. It's very, it's very difficult to turn pro, isn't it, with these things? Really difficult. I mean, it's, it's you're mirroring the same difficulties of the band, really. You know, that you, yeah, you, you are. Know, you know, when you, you know, because once you once you're monthly and once you're into W. H. Smiths and so you can you have to. It's the same applies with the records. You have to compete with the set that you're in. You know, yeah. you you no longer define your own terms. You know, you're alongside the smash hits, the face, whatever else it is. And so if you're not glossy, you know, you, you suffer really, all that kind of thing. It's just very, very, very hard. And also it some is. of your character was probably lost by that, actually. The, the, you know, the magazine's character was as a kind of, a, you this know, as a fanzine, really. That was what kind of, you know, that's what what kind of, uh, it, it felt it felt it ought to be. And yeah. Uh, once you're competing with the others, yeah. it yeah it took some of that. But you, you can also see why the distributor would say it's got to be every month because for them it's very difficult to build a business if yeah. you're not every month or you're not because you can't say the the retailer it's coming every month leave a space for it kind of thing. Mind you, those are days are now gone, aren't they? For all of us, <laughs> so this is this is if we're talking about the penny farthing, isn't it? Really. <laughs> <laughs> I have a. Uh, do we have time for a quick anecdote? Go on. Yes. Go on. So I was in my local supermarket. Just uh, I'm in there, you know, twice a week. But it was about two weeks ago, and um, the supermarket is big enough that it has a magazine area and it has ma a magazine rack, as they often do at the uh, what we call the checkout here. Um, and you know, it's it's a decent set of magazines. I mean, there was a special on Nirvana right at the checkout. The magazine rack, I know. Um, you know, it has some decent, it has some decent cooking magazines because I've looked. And I heard uh, from behind me this little kid say, Dad, let's buy a magazine. And I looked around and it was quite a young, dare I say, trendy family because the kid had an Italian football shirt on. Right. And, and Dad looked, you know, like some kind of 30 something, late 30s hipster. And he said, No, son, people don't buy magazines anymore. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
No, oh, that's that a chilling. What a strange thing to say to your child. It is because normally, if you, if you have a child showing any interest it in is reading read. anything, incredible. <laughs> well, have a chocolate well, just, bar instead. Yeah. No, just to speak to your point, the kid said. So he said, people don't read magazines anymore, or don't buy them, one or the other. And the kid said, why not? And he said, oh, the internet killed all of that. And uh, what got me was actually there was some semi-decent, it wasn't just National Enquirer. I mean, no. you know, it was, you know, I, I was tempted by a Nirvana special. I'm like, well, what do they still say about Nirvana? It hasn't been said. Maybe maybe I'll spend that $5 that I, and, and not read it. But it was, um, it was like, oh, my God, you know. That is a strange thing to say. Yeah. Um, because, because actually one of the few areas of the magazine market in Britain that I think is doing quite well, is the small children's market. Right. Because parents like buying things for small children that encourage them to just sit there and read rather than stab at a tablet and so forth. Yeah, maybe they, maybe I just you know, heard from the odd, the odd, very odd hipster family. Um, you know, there must there must be a reason there are magazines in the in the supermarket. I mean, you would you would think that some of them have to sell. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. So this is obviously, this is the stocking filler, if people still have stockings, yeah. for the people who really misses jamming and the Beano annual. You can have you can have the you know the memories of one in the shape of another, can't you? That's and it'll save you having to buy them on eBay, because I noticed there's, you know, issue six is for 46 quid you can get that oh, on eBay. wow. She's amazing. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it really? Oh, yeah, my gosh. It's very flattering, isn't it? Have you still got a garage full of them? Well, I did have a garage full of them. Did you say garage and not yeah. garage? Well, that's very American of you. Well, it? I, well. Oh. Most Americans say garage, isn't it? Because this is the one I get really upset about. Garage. So, and you said g- garage, garage, and some people say garage. Right, there's three ways. It's the American yeah. one that gets me. Garage um, is southern counties. Which is oh, where there I'm we from. go. Garage is uh, is uh, north. Well, ga- ga- garage is musical. Well, garage. Yeah, garage is, is, is uh, in Britain. Is uh, you say garage when you mean the mu- form of music, right? And, and I come I, from the north, yeah. and I say garage. Oh, there, oh, yeah. there we go. There we go. Anyway, uh, anyway, I did Sorted. have. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I I got us off track. I did have a um, certainly a lockup full of them for a while, but you know, emigration will do something to that. They, I, I quite a number of. Uh, magazines eventually followed me to the states. There was a point where I actually got things shipped over, and then you just keep you know, moving around. And there was a point I had to, I let a whole load of them go. Um, it was number ten in particular, which is weird because it's such a good issue, and I was surprised I still had many. And you know they're probably twenty thirty bucks on eBay, but it's what are you going to do? The main thing is I have one copy or more of every issue, or you couldn't have put this book together. And I am tempted to wonder if anybody else held on to the first issue. It was so bad that people only bought it out of sympathy. (laughs) Lawrence and I, Lawrence was a really tough kid. I mean, he really, really was. He had this hard rock background. His dad was a bouncer, like the head of that main security firm. So when Lawrence went around school on the last day of of term at Christmas 1977 and said, here, buy a fanzine. Most people bought one. (laughs) And... And then I went home for Christmas, sold it to sort of uncles and aunts and anybody else that took pity on me. And I suspect everybody threw them out. And I guarded mine 
like I didn't want anybody to see that first issue for for you know what must be what it was it now 40 45 years 44 <laughs> years but um as I as I right now you know you've got to start somewhere so so now I've put it out for the world to see but oh the I first issue is so copy. brilliant there's a cover line on it which says something like um it says something like uh, yeah this is rarer and cheaper than any 12 inch single so buy it it's just such a nice thing, just handwritten on the cover. Yeah, it's a great hand, cover line. My handwriting um, yeah. is, is probably better than the drawing I attempted above, isn't it? But, yeah, uh, I think the next issue, one of the cover lines is win an album. So you've obviously just had to go out and buy an album. You know? yeah, win an album of your choice. I think, <laughs> so brilliant. Win an album. That's such a good idea. I think you should make a film about it, actually, Tony. I think it, I think yeah. it'd, make a, it'd make a very sweet film, actually. I can, yeah. I can, has anybody ever made a film about a fanzine? Make a good film, wouldn't it? It would. I've, I kind of think it would. And, you know, I, I um, side side plug, but several years back, I had this memoir, Boy About Town, that sort of told my story, but only up to the age of 16, only up to what would have been issue, putting together issue 10. But it was really meant to be a sort of coming of age, and it's it's my sort of almost famous in terms of you know being in that scene when you're 13 14 15 yeah um and i had so many people say to me that's that's a movie and i'm like it is get then get it made you know it's like that's not what idea. i do but it's a it good made. movie because you can see that the, all the staff members all the characters all the different characters you know the, the, yeah. the punk and with was, the green hair you know well they're also kid, characters. teenagers against adversity you know people yeah, like yeah, that yeah. idea yeah. you know whether it's a baseball team or a fans. And every every episode they've got to go, I was thinking of a sitcom now. Actually, every episode they've got to get an issue out. But oh, no, you've made great. it more yeah. complicated. It's more complicated. It's now a sitcom. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. And as I keep saying to people, run with it. Run with it and let me know when you get the deal. I mean, yeah. I, I, I do agree with you, but God knows when you spend enough time. And listen, you 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 know about this when you spend enough time shopping book ideas and trying to get the things done that you do do. The idea of like, oh, I think I'm now just going to go off and write a script or a or a movie and you know just take a plane to Hollywood or something and try and sell something. You just you hope that somebody will get in touch with you. We're going to. Yeah. yeah, we'll put that idea out into the ether that somebody should make a movie based on the story of Tony Fletcher and Jamin based on this book. And somebody you never know might be listening and somebody might think that's a good idea. Tony, it's been lovely to talk to you. Fantastic talk. What are you, what are you working book. on at the moment? What else are you doing? Um, the... I've been trying to get this wrapped up for a little while, but the timing is really good coming out of this. There was always meant to be a sequel to that aforementioned Boy About Town because everybody said, well, you're 16, you're about to start a record label with Paul Weller. What happens next? And and I am very, very far through that. It's been a longer process than the initial one. Very, very far through that. And, and I do, you know, I, I do other things. But funny enough, I'd actually work... Um, as a show director with kids here on the, on the, at the Rock Academy, actually sort of like the original sort of Rock Academy. And I have a lot of fun trying to, you know, get 13-year-old modern versions of me and 8-year-old versions of me and 17-year-old versions of me on stage at the same time, you know, playing the same song in the same key. And it's it uh, keeps me very young and very old at the same time. So That's, that's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. All good work, Tony. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.